Hi, my name is Bob Darrow and I am alcoholic. And only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in, that I've accessed and maintained in my life through a process outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the ability to remain sponsorable and a persistent and consistent effort and our primary purpose of trying to forget ourselves and devote our lives to helping others. And consequently, I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering medication since October 31st, 1978. And that is, it's, it's the greatest miracle in my life. It's, a, it's sometimes even hard to believe. Uh, I'm I think I'm delighted to be here. This uh, virtual stuff is very, feels very awkward to me, but it is what we have right now. And I appreciate that. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I've loved Alcoholics Anonymous from the very beginning this time. And I hated it for seven years in and out of AA. But since I got sober in 78, I've fallen in love with AA. And I've fallen in love with AA because of good sponsorship that has encouraged me and nudged me continually to serve AA and to help serve God's kids. And, and it's a funny dynamic that you can almost, you can't help but fall in love with something that you serve. And you can't help but stay in love with something that you serve. And Alcoholics Anonymous has gotten me through some tough times, but I've been very fortunate from the school of AA that I came from, that I've always had a sponsor, I've always had commitments, I've always been tethered to AA, and consequently, when times are tough, I've always turned into AA, and I've watched the people that turn out, and I watch what happens to them, and often it's, it's horrific. Because alcoholism persists. And I believe it progresses while we're in while we're in these rooms. That it's that it um, it doesn't go away. It and it, it you know that because if you've been around for a while, you may have observed what I've observed. And that's someone that you watch get sober, maybe you 12-step them, and you know a lot about where they were at when they got sober, and they stay sober 10 years, and they start to drift away, and they start to get more into their life and less into recovery, more into their problems and less into the solution, until they eventually drink again, and what happens, they don't pick up where they left off. If they did, they would have an easier chance of getting back. But what happens is the diseases progress while they were in AA, and consequently they come back to Alcoholics Anonymous willing to do everything they did 15, 12, 15 years before that got them the first X number of years. And the problem is it's not enough anymore because the disease has progressed in the way it seems to progress in guys like me that go, if, if I, because I know if I go out again, I'm dead. But I've watched, what I've watched is it progresses in the ego. The ego gets bigger, more entitlement. You become smarter. Uh, all AA, no AA is in your innermost self anymore. It's all in your head. And there's a lot of it up there. And it's knowledge that becomes fodder for your ego. You become the I know guy, the guy that you can't tell anything to, that's dying of alcoholism, and yet you're smarter than everybody in the room. And, and that, that's frightening because I know that waits for me. In 1978, I stood on a bridge trying to take my own life in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I was back, <clears throat> I was just back there not too long ago. And I got to tell you something, that bridge waits for me. And it's, it, as whatever your vehicle of your ultimate demise was at the end, it waits for you. Alcoholics, alcoholism is not only cunning, baffling, and powerful, but it's patient and it's clever and it's insidious and it will use things in AA. 
to bring you out of AA. And so I am very, very much uh, grateful for the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous is in my life. I, <clears throat> God's been very good to me lately. He's thrown a couple new guys in my path, and I've felt like I've needed every one of them. Uh, I, I have a disease called alcoholism, and it's a, you know, we talk a lot about the drinking aspect of alcoholism, and we do that because it's very important. Uh, in chapter five, it says that the people who do not recover, people who are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, and, and boy, I understand that because I was one of those guys for about seven years. I came to my first AA meeting as a young kid. I wasn't even old enough to take a legal drink. And for all those seven years, I, I could not completely give myself to AA because I believed consciously and sometimes unconsciously that my case was different. And I had different things to look at. I, well, I do, I do drugs. So I'm I'm a different type of alcoholic. I'm a depressive. So I'm a different type of alcoholic. I came from a good family that I was overloved as a kid. I'm a different type of alcoholic. I, I I have relationship problems. I'm a different type of alcoholic. I have employee people don't understand me. I'm a different type of alcoholic. And it was I go to meetings and I don't feel like anybody there looks or sounds. I'm a different type of alcoholic. And I used, my mind used everything in my perception, and my sponsor calls this a disease of perception, to separate me from you. Chamberlain uh, was my, my sponsor's sponsor, Chuck Chamberlain, and Chuck used to say there was one problem that contained all problems, and that was conscious and unconscious separation between me and you and me and God. And, and it really, the, 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 the crux of the matter is the separation between me and you. Because as I get further from God's kids, I get further from God. It's for, it, it, some of us don't, don't get that. But, it, you know, I was the kind of guy, even with a number of years of sobriety, I want to be very close to God, but still think you're all stupid, right? And still be separate from you through my judgments and my opinions. So it'd be me and God against the world. And I'll tell you, the further I get away from you, the further away I am from God. And that has just been the case. And, and, and my ego, which I think is at the crux of the matter, our book says uh, that selfishness and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles. And my God, it sure was with me. I couldn't fit with you because I had an ego that shattered to me all the time and created opinions all the time and judgments and self-righteousness and entitlement and on and on and on that just kept me separate. I remember many occasions in the seven years I was in and out just being horribly pathetic and, and self-loathing. And, and I just, I feel like such a piece of crap and I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm a piece of crap, but I'm a piece of crap with evidently a very high IQ, right? <laughs> like separate from everybody. I just sit there and judge myself. And I think that is the essence of the ism as I separate myself. And alcoholism is a lonely, lonely business. And selfishness and self-centeredness is the, at the root of it. I got too much of me between me and life. I got too much of me between me and you. And I got too much of me between me and God. And it doesn't matter if you're right and they're all wrong. You're still separate and apart from. And alcoholism, it, it's almost as if it's an entity that has to pull me out of the herd. It has to disconnect me from anything that would contest its dominance, like a sponsor, like a home group, like sponsor, like like Alcoholics Anonymous, and I and I've watched uh, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of people 
over the four decades, a little more than four decades I've been here, leave Alcoholics Anonymous. And most of them don't know they're leaving because it doesn't look that way to them. Their ego has taken their perception hostage. And it looks to them like everybody in AA is stupid or wrong or out of line or not doing it right or unfair or unreasonable. And they don't understand that they're the one that's leaving. And that is a frightening dynamic. And believe me, the reason it's frightening to me, because it's all in me. It's all in me. I'm not, uh, the people that leave Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I'm no better than them. I'm no smarter than them. I'm no more awake than they are. I just haven't done what they've done. I haven't, I just have never left AA. I've never not had a sponsor. I've never built cases against my sponsor or my home group uh, where they're wrong and I'm right and I have to leave. Um, So I, I, Alcoholics Anonymous has truly saved me from me over the years because left alone, I will destroy myself. I, I won't mean to. And I'll destroy everything good in my life. I won't mean to, but I will. And I know that. I've had glimpses of it in my life. And so I, I have to stay here. I, I have alcoholism. When I say that, I'm talking about a relationship with alcohol that waits for me. And al- alcohol, to be an alcoholic, alcohol did something for me that I think it only ever does for alcoholics. It doesn't do it for my sister and my daughter, but it does it for me. And what is it that it does for me? Well, you know, you'll hear a hundred versions of how it makes you feel good and makes you bulletproof and makes you be able, you're able, to, be able to come out and play and connects you to life. And as Wilson said, I was a part of life at last and on and on and on. But I think truly what it does is it solves a problem I don't know that I have. And the problem I don't know that I have is I'm in this bondage of self. I'm hostage to my own obsessive self-involvement. No, no wonder abstinence is so often lonely to a guy like me because it's, I, I separate myself from life. With its a thing that Wilson talks about in the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, that state of anxious apartness. It's that separation, and and what alcohol did for me is it relieved me of the bondage of self, and it allowed me to get free. It allowed me to get me up off of me, as as the dozens and dozens of times walking into parties and bars, and I'm I'm sober and I'm just so uptight and so depressed and so lonely and so locked up in me and so judgmental and intolerant of people and five or six drinks and all of a sudden the people look better they just seem to shape up a little bit you know and seven or eight drinks i'm starting to say things to you like i love you bro you know i mean i start feeling that connectedness you know that uh that freedom that, that the loneliness goes away, the depression goes away, and I'm able to come outside and act extemporaneously. And I loved the, that effect produced by alcohol. I loved it. And that is from the days, in the early days of, alcohol, of alcoholism, in the early days of drinking, there was a hook set within me that becomes the obsession and it's 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 a devious thing because it, it, people would talk about this obsession you, you have the obsession to drink and I, I wouldn't get that because it's not really that way i don't have an obsession with with whiskey i have an obsession with an effect the effect produced by alcohol is what is what the hook is is in i become obsessed with that and, and so what happens is, is I, I, abstinence wears on me until I pick up a drink, and then alcohol 
if you're an alcoholic and you pick up a drink, alcohol does something to you that it only does to alcoholics. And what is that? Well, when I drink alcohol and the effect, that feeling starts to hit me. You know, it happens usually about two shots, maybe, a, you know, at somewhere in that, the beginning of drinking, a feeling starts to come over me. And what happens is I break out in an irresistible yearning for more of that. And I, I have never, uh, I've had the allergy my whole drinking from, from the first day I ever drank. I remember I was just a young kid. I wasn't right before my 13th birthday and I'm with a bunch of older kids and I'm trying desperately to fit with them. And I'm always coming from behind and I don't really ever feel like I'm connected or feel like they look and I drank whiskey the first time, and all of a sudden, I was free. All of a sudden, uh, I was okay. It, it was spectacular. But I couldn't stop, and I didn't know that. When the, when the effect of the alcohol hit me, it was like something inside of me just went, oh, yeah. Oh, I got to have more of this. More, more. And it's like there's this this more switch inside of me that, that one drink of alcohol throws the more switch and I can't turn it off. I can't even find the switch. Alcohol is the only thing that can find the switch. I can't find the switch. I can't find it to turn it on. I can't find it to turn it off. That once it's thrown, it, it doesn't shut off until I, if I'm still conscious and I'm that guy, I'm that guy that drinks, uh, if I'm still conscious, I ain't done drinking once I've started. I'm that guy. You know, I just, I, I've been so, I was at a party one time and I was, I took some kind of pills. They were animal tranquilizers. I've been drinking for about an hour and I took these animal tranquilizers and they rendered me, like they turned all my muscles to like jelly or something. I couldn't even get up. I was laying on the floor, but I'm still awake. So I'm laying there trying to talk people into bringing me drinks because of an allergic reaction to alcohol, right? Because if I'm still conscious, I ain't done. And that's the only way that would shut this switch off was I had to pass out or, you know, whatever. And then I'd come to and, and what I come to up against is the obsession with the effect, the need, the yearning for the effect. I love what Carl Jung said to Bill Wilson in a letter I have a copy of in, in the early 60s. He, he said that he, as a result of working with Roland Hazard and merit, very uh, many alcoholics, that he came to the conclusion that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol wasn't a thirst for alcohol. It was really a low-level thirst of the alcoholic's being for unity or connectedness, or if you're more religiously minded, a union with God. And, and I drank for unity. I drank to feel a part of. I, I drank because of, there's a horrible depressive loneliness about me sober. And I don't know how to overcome that. And I went to therapy because I got, as the, as the disease progressed, two things started happening to me. And the one that was the most hideous was the corruption of the effect. And what that means is as the years went on, my ability to make alcohol an effective treatment for this bondage of self, my ability to get free when I drank was diminishing and bleeding out until the last two or three years of my drinking, I'm chasing the ghosts of parties past and I can't catch them. I'm drinking in pathetic depression and loneliness and it's horrible, yet still fantasizing and hoping to recapture the old parties, the old effect. And I can't. And I, I, I don't know what's wrong, but the drinking part of the equation has, has gone south on me. And I'm throwing, you know, and that's when you start to seeing doctors and getting pills and buying drugs, you know, throwing everything I can into the mix to try to jumpstart that freedom, that, that effect. And I can't, and it's failing, and it's failing, and it's getting worse and worse. And at the same time that's happening, abstinence is becoming more and more untenable and more and more uncomfortable. 
and, and it's, it's starting to, it feels like I'm doing time. And now, now I get sober and I don't fit anywhere. Now I get sober and I'm depressed. Now I get sober and I'm angry. Now I get sober and I, my head gets up on me and just starts worrying me into some kind of neurotic insanity. And it works on me day in and day out. And everything that Silkworth says, I am the restlessness. The irritability, the just, that, just that chronic noticing of how stupid people are. And everybody bugs me. Everybody irritates me. Just, just want just to go through life slapping everybody for being who they are, you know, just because they're stupid, right? It, it's just a horrible, horrible, conflicted internal life. And, and I live internal. I don't live much in the world. And then I'm chronically malcontent. And and I don't know what that's about. And I've watched this. Uh, I've watched it in myself, and I've watched it in dozens and dozens of people. Where, as you know, they come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they get everything they want until everything they got they don't want. The shine wears off of everything, and 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 I. It was so funny. I didn't understand this until I really, at a gut level understand this until I was 10 years sober. And then I was working with a guy in the, I was going up to visit him on uh, visiting days at the state penitentiary, a guy I was trying to sponsor that's locked up. And it's very, it's very difficult to sponsor people locked up, but I was doing the best I could. And I'm sitting in the room with him and where the visitor, the visitor thing one day with him. And he said something to me and it really, it really shone a light on where this chronic malcontent comes from, why nothing I bring into my life, no matter how good it is, seems to ring my bell very long. And now the shine of it just wears off so quickly. And he said something to me, and it, I got it. And what I got was that when I first started drinking, alcohol did something that was so spectacular that it planted something deep within my psyche. It planted a, a feeling of relief and connectedness and a freedom. And little did I know that from that, the planting of that within me, I would spend the rest of my life comparing whatever I acquire, whatever I have, whatever I achieve to the way five shots of vodka used to make me feel. And I got to tell you something, if you're like me, it will all pale in comparison. Yeah, this, this is great, but it ain't that. This is wonderful, but it's not that. How come, how come she doesn't make me feel like as good as vodka made me feel? How come this job doesn't make me feel as good as vodka used to make me feel? How come this Harley doesn't make me feel as good as vodka? How come this band? How come this guitar? How come, how come, how come, how come, how come life is so damn disappointing? Because unconsciously, I'm comparing everything to the effect produced by alcohol, and it all pales. And so I'm like a lot of us, you know, I, I get physically sober because I'm not stupid. I get it, man. I'm, I'm destroying my life here drinking. This, I, will, I will never have a life. I, it's horrible. And I get sober in this, in this low-level depression and the feelings of separation and the restless, the irritable, the discontent. It all just seems to work on me day in and day out and week in and week out. And because I know I shouldn't, must not drink, I tough it out for as long as I can. And then something happens to me. And it's not the returning of the obsession to drink. It's an obsession or a yearning, a deep-seated yearning for freedom. I just, I just want to bust out, you know. I, I'm just, I'm just tired here. I'm tired of my feelings. I'm tired of my thoughts. I'm tired of the loneliness. I'm tired of the low-level depression. I'm tired of all of it. And then right behind the yearning for freedom is a memory of something I should have, I should forget. And if you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic, you'll remember what you should have forgotten and you'll forget what you should have remembered. I don't remember at this point in the yearning for freedom 
that alcohol almost killed me, that I was crying, sobbing, swearing to myself, I'll never touch it again. I know this is horrible. It's drinking is horrible. I'll never do this again. I forget that. You know what I remember? I remember the freedom that I got when I was 18 years old and I was with a bunch of guys and we were drinking and I could come out and play and I felt significant. I remember what I should forget and I forget what I should remember. Dr. Silkworth says it best. He says, after a time, I can't differentiate the true from the false. Seeing my insanity seems normal to me. The al my alcoholic mind can make crazy seem normal. I mean, it can make the most nonsensical stuff seem sensible. That's why you got to have a sponsor. You got to have a sponsor that when you tell them your little plans and designs, they look at you and they go, what are you out of your goddamn mind? <laughs> right? You got to, because you, you won't tell yourself that. I won't. I don't know about you, but my, my ideas are brilliant. They're brilliant. Until you say them out, out loud in front of another person and they, they go, what are you out of your mind? Uh, and I need that. I just, I, I need that. I'm sober a long time. Sometimes I had a conversation with a friend of mine today and he, he didn't say, what are you out of your mind? But he kind of pointed out a few things that needed to be pointed out, right? And I need that. I, I, I just need that. Because I've spent my whole life intermittently in distress and internal conflict. And in those moments, if you're like me and you're self-centered like me, do you know what I like to do? I like to sit and try to figure it out. And I'm telling you, if you're like me, you'll never see what's going on because what you're looking for, you're looking with. There's a line in our book, it says that, that, that we are extreme examples of self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. I've never in my sobriety been self-will run riot and in the middle of it, stop and think to myself, oh my God, this is self-will run riot. I've never thought that. It just all seems right to me because the ego is the most defended mechanism on the planet. That's why uh, it's so, it's been so important in my sobriety. And it really started with the fourth step out of the, when I finally did it out of the book and to start looking at things from an entirely different angle, to start realizing how wrong I've been. And I have grown uh, significantly over the years by my, my willingness to not defend myself and my willingness to be wrong. And we grow from our willingness to be wrong because it's what, it's what makes our ego smaller and make, brings God closer and brings you closer and makes amends viable. And, and all of that, you have, to be, you have to be willing to be wrong. And, and, and that's, a, that's a great thing in a guy like me. I hope, I, uh, I hope I'm always able to listen to people. And I'm always, and I stop defending. I hope I cannot defend myself because it's in the defensiveness that I destroy myself. I think, here's the crazy thing. When I think I'm protecting myself, I'm actually destroying myself. And that's why, uh, that's why this third step has become so important. And I, I keep revisiting it. And I think all the rest of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is just designed to facilitate this decision I've made in step three. Basically, so not so I get closer to God. I mean, that's kind of a byproduct, I suppose. It's just that I get so I can get my life out of the hands of the idiot who, who thinks it's smarter than everybody, right? And, and, that's, and the idiot's still there. And the idiot now is armed with information from the big book. The idiot is now armed with the traditions and the steps. The idiot is armed with a plethora of clever AA sayings. But the idiot's still the idiot. He's just, he's just a smarter idiot, that's all. 
And so I, 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 I try to stay in this thing. I try to stay, you know, my sponsor has a great saying. It's, and I think it's so true. He says, people don't drink or commit suicide over making mistakes. They drink or commit suicide by defending the mistakes. And I think that is so, and I've watched, I've watched people over the years that have come to a terrible, terrible end. And I've, I've been in meetings and I've been around after meetings talking to people that are just really crazy. And you know why they're crazy? Because they're right about everything. And you can't talk to them. And I've tried, and, and I, am, I am astounded at how defended alcoholism can be. How defended we are. And, you know, the, the thing that scares me about that, about that is, is that that is all, that all of that is in me. I, I remember when back in the days I was in and out of AA, I, I fit the old adage, you can always tell an alcoholic, you just can't tell him much. I was so defended. I was so right. I was so smart. I was, I knew everything. I, I, I'd worked as a counselor for God's sakes. I'd read a lot of stuff. I, I had, I was, I was accepted to Ivy League colleges. I had a really high IQ. I'm the I know guy and I'm dying. And I'm dying. And I don't understand what's happening to me because my head keeps showing me how I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm dying. In 1978, I, I, uh, I was in a treatment center that I'd been placed into by a judge in lieu of two years of prison. And I, all I had to do was stay in there a year and I wouldn't have to go to prison. It wouldn't even be a felony. It would be a misdemeanor, which was really good. And, but I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't stay sober a year. And not because I didn't want to, not because I didn't understand the importance of me not drinking and fulfilling those requirements. I just emotionally can't handle it. And Father Martin one time said something that was very brilliant. He said, when emotion and intellect are in conflict with each other, the emotion always wins. And it, all the knowledge and commitment to not drinking eventually is worn away by the emotion. And what emotion? Well, the, the low-level depression, the, lo the loneliness. The chronic discontent and disillusion that nothing in life is good, all the negativity, the irritability that I, because I judge everybody. And it all just wears on me day in and day out until I, I get to a point where I think I can, I'll just, just for one night, that's all. Here, here's how, here's the insanity of this. I convince myself that I could take a couple drinks and nobody would know. Let me tell you something. The phenomenon of craving in me is so strong. If I took a drink tomorrow, everybody in Nevada is going to know I'm messed up before the end of the week because it just gets out from under me so quick, and it got out from under me. I couldn't even get away with it. And, of course, I, get, I, don't, just, I don't stop it drunk. Oh, if I could stop it drunk, I might not be an alcoholic. I'm the, I'm the guy who's the drunker I get, the more I need to drink. I'm that guy, right? And so I get just shit-faced drunk, and I'm out of line, and I've got a big mouth, and of course I get caught and thrown out of there, and I don't even, I, I don't even know anymore how long it was. I don't know if it was a few days or a good part of a week. I, I don't know, uh, but I, I came to in a park, and I, I was so sick. And so depressed, and I, I'm in, I'm in the trap I can't spring. That it talks about it in a vision for you, where it's no longer you're no longer the guy who can't imagine life without it. Now I'm the guy who can't imagine life with it. The way it's become, it's turned on me. It's become horrible, and I can't imagine life without it either because abstinence feels like I'm doing time. And I made the decision to kill myself, and I couldn't do it, but. In that decision and in that 
hopeless desperation, I something happened to me. And I, it wasn't until I was sober about a month or two, and I went to hear Chuck Chamberlain talk for the first time. And Chuck said that he'd been surrendered by the bottle. And I didn't understand almost anything else Chuck said because you had to be sober a little while before Chuck started to make sense, you know. Uh, but I got that. And I thought, maybe that's why I have a sponsor now and I never did before. Maybe that's why I have a home group and I never did before. Maybe that's why I've, I've agreed to turn myself in and go, to the go back to prison. What's why I'm contacting my parents. All the, all the things that I was not willing to do. I had commitments. I, had, I was taking meetings back into the deep. I had everything that in the prior seven years I was unwilling to do, I was now doing and it was baffling to me because I didn't know why. But I guess I had to have enough of me kicked out of me that I could listen to you and follow your directions. In 1978, in that detox, something transformational had happened to me, and I didn't understand it for a while. And what had happened to me is I had gone from the, being the, the guy who knew everything to the guy who only knew one thing, only one thing, but boy, I knew it. I knew it. In the core of my being, I knew that one thing. And that one thing is I knew I didn't know. And when you know you don't know, you're sponsorable. You're in a sense surrendered. When you know you don't know, you can get help. When you're the I know guy, you can't get it. Nobody can help you. You're too full of yourself. And that's exactly what had happened to me. I had just enough of me kicked out of me that I could hear you. And got a sponsor and started taking his directions. And my life started to change dramatically. And, you know, I like this, the, the point, the name of your guys' group, I think this, this concept of singleness of purpose is, is very, very important. And, it, you know, it's funny. When I first got sober, I, I was very asleep for a long time. And, I, and because I had had such a counseling background, I was one who thought, well, kind of looks like it's all the same, you know, all these disorders. Why, not, why don't we, you know, it, why don't we open up AA to everybody? But I'm mature. I'm emotionally immature and spiritually immature. Uh, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, Irish philosophers, um, George Bernard Shaw, one time said something that's really. He said, "Immature people. If if you're an immature young person, if you if you're not liberal to, and you don't you won't develop a heart. But as you get older." If you're not conservative, you won't have not developed your mind. And that's what, in early days of sobriety, I thought AA should be for everybody. Matter of fact, I was trying to, I was trying to 12-step my mother. My mother didn't even drink, but I, I thought I could see the ism in her. You know what I mean? I could just see it. I just, you know, I just wanted AA for everybody, right? And then you start to grow up a little bit, and you realize that's, that's ridiculous. The... The, the, and, I, and I was open to all kinds because I had had so much therapy. I wanted AA to include gestalt, transactional analysis, a little bit of rational motive therapy. I wanted it to be all, in, I wanted it to include all, to all modalities, which is ridiculous. The strength of Alcoholics Anonymous is that we have a singleness of problem and a singleness of recovery. We have one problem. Now, you can have a lot of other problems. And I don't know. I don't think I sponsor anybody who, whose pro only problem was alcohol. But they all have the problem with alcohol. And they get it. And they're awake to it. And they understand. Because in, in, for me, until I really understood that I had alcoholism, I wasn't prepared to put all my chips in the pot here. Because my case was different. And until I, I had tried and really looked at how I had tried so many different things to get better, and I just got sicker, that what seems to be left after over years and years, when you cut away everything that doesn't work, what you're left with 
is the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous, unity, recovery, and service. And when you cut away everything else, it's, and it makes Alcoholics Anonymous like a laser with its singleness of problem and singleness of recovery. A laser, because it's so tightly focused, has the power to cut through a steel beam. But if you were to, to diffuse and spread that light source out over a large enough area, it can get large enough that you can't even read a newspaper from it because it loses its power because the power becomes diffused. And that is the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we, if you're here, we don't care what other problems you have. My God, I, I think when I was new, I could, of course, I'm, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac anyway. I think I could have gone to every 12-step program on the planet. Matter of fact, I'm the guy, I don't have cancer, but just if I just think about it for a minute, I can feel a brain tumor growing in my head. I'm that guy. I imagine I'm everything. I'm so neurotic. I'm, I can imagine I got everything. But the truth was I discovered something that was so paramount is I have one problem. And it's alcoholism. And it's the problem really is what occurs within me when I get sober. It's this, not just the abnormal reaction to alcohol, and my God, I have that. But I have this abnormal reaction to abstinence. And it is my abstinence problem that brings me to the table in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not the guy who who just comes to his senses one day and says, oh, this drinking's bad for me, puts the plug in the jug and lives happily ever after. I'm the guy who realizes that this is killing me. I put the plug in the jug and immediately start realizing what's wrong with all of you and what's wrong with life and how I've gotten a bad deal here. And I start sinking into either in anger and depression because of this, as my sponsor refers to it as this disease of perception. And I have that. I have this, that to this day. I, I have that inclination. The, the basics of, of my sickness, just like for every chronic illness, have not gone away. Just like the chronic diabetic, a chronic diabetic if he's true to his program of recovery with insulin and diet and exercise, uh, he can live very, very comfortably for a lifetime with chronic diabetes or the, or the, chronic, the person who has chronic heart disease or the guy like me who has chronic alcoholism. If I, if I continue to put the, th the main thing is the main thing, if I continue to put first things first. If I continue to make every day alcoholism a piece of business in my life, and I do, I get up uh, two hours early every morning and I spend time with God and then some with my sponsees and I just prepare myself for the day. I don't rush into the day because how you enter your day is how your day will go. So I don't rush into the day because I don't want a rushed day. I don't want to carry anxiety into my day. So I ease into it, and I ease into it with God. I need God. Some days that's more apparent than others. Um, because that really is the ultimate here. I, it, the problem with, with God in me is that I have to I have to backdoor God. I I that's why churches don't work so well for us, because a direct approach and and the attempt to make a direct connection with God, bypassing His kids, bypassing service, bypassing the self reduction, and the steps, doesn't work. I have to come around from behind by by helping God's kids and, and, and doing the steps and seeing how wrong I'd been. And, and all of the, Harry Tebow was a brilliant guy who was very close to Bill Wilson. He actually was Wilson's therapist for a while. Harry said, uh, and he's quoted in a lot of AA literature, but he said that 
we must have ego reduction at depth. I can't get closer to God until I get closer to you. I can't get closer to God until I get smaller. And so I, my, a direct, and I, I sponsored a guy who was, I, I sponsored several men of the cloth, very religious guys. Uh, and most of them have died of alcoholism, drank themselves to death because they, they were so, they believed now they wouldn't have said this because they want to look humble, but they see their actions were the actions of someone who believed they were more spiritually advanced than the people in AA. Consequently, they didn't have to do all the things we have to do. And that they were so spiritually advanced, it was just them and God. They could do the direct approach. And then they couldn't. And neither can I. I stay close to God by staying close to you. I stay close to God by staying small. I, um, being willing to be wrong. Being willing to serve. Being willing to be inconvenienced. I'll tell you something. When this, is, this pandemic is over, I do not want to do Zoom after that. I don't want to be a Zoom speaker. I really don't. I don't like this. It's, it's, when you think about it, it's, it's hideous because it's, it's all of the social notoriety and prestige without any of the inconvenience. But it's the inconvenience is where the spirit is where is the spiritual growth and the humility comes from the willingness to be inconvenienced. As, as Wilson said in his story, that if the alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through two things, and it's not prayer and meditation, even though prayer and meditation are important, that's not how you perfect and enlarge your spiritual life. Wilson says it's through self-sacrifice. As my friend Larry says, if you're new, are you willing to be divinely inconvenienced here through self-sacrifice and the constant thought of others, their needs, and how we can work for them? That's how we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life. I didn't want it to be that way. I'd, I'd gone to TM and, and, and uh, SGI, Buddhism, and I did a lot of stuff in the years I was in and out trying to fix me. And I had the, a fantasy that if I could just get spiritual enough, I could say, screw you to all the people in the world, and just me and God would be on some kind of hilltop somewhere, and I will die without you. I will die without you. And I have to be, in the back of the book, the medical view of alcoholism, one of the psychiatrists there, he, he says that AA brings to bear two of the strongest forces in the human race, the force of religious insight and the herd instinct. I need to be part of the herd. And, and it doesn't matter on any given day if it looks like it's a stupid herd, I still have to be part of the herd, right? <laughs> My life depends on it. That's why, that's why the beauty of being involved in Alcoholics Anonymous is it forces you to continually change your perception and continually look to see where you're wrong and continually practice the code of AA. The code of Alcoholics Anonymous is love and tolerance. I didn't know what those meant when I got sober. I, I thought I did. You know what I thought tolerance was? I thought tolerance is when you were politely pissed off at someone. You know what I mean? Like, like they're really a jerk, but I'm going to be a big guy here and not say anything. That's not tolerance. That's how you build an ulcer. Tolerance is when you change your perception as it talks about in in the, in the resentment section of the fourth step, and this was our course, when you change your perception and you realize things that make, make them look different and you are different around them, to allow them to turn freely in the world as they are. They don't have to change for you to be better. And love, I didn't know, I didn't know what love was. I thought it had to do with sex or need or or, or, or finding the right hostage. 
I thought that was love. I thought it was a selfish thing. It was me, 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 me. I thought it was filling up my vacancies and my indefense, me, me, me. And I learned a little bit, a little bit about love in 12-step work, spending hours with a guy who's coming apart at the seams, and I just, all of a sudden, he becomes important for me, to me, and for no reason. I mean, he, he can't enhance my life in any way, except that I, I love him because he is like me. And that is where I started to learn a little bit about love and tolerance. And, oh, some days I'm better at it than others. Some days, I, some days, this will sound egotistical, but I tell you, I think objectively there are days when I'm such a good member of AA, they should build a statue of me at GSO. And then there are other days I just want to go around and apologize for not being a better member and not being more spiritual. And, and I'm always caught somewhere in between those two extremes. And if you're new here, uh, I hope, and I don't say this to be mean, but I hope that you burn out everything. There's a line in our book, and I'm going to close with this. And it talks about how a lot of us get here. And it's, before you ever believe in AA, before you ever believe in God or your sponsor or anything, it says that we came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of our life as we had been living it. Do you really believe in that? And then it says at that point, when you're approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there's nothing left. Are you at the point where there's no more plans? Are you at the point where there's nothing left except to pick up this simple kit of spiritual tools which don't look like they're going to work that's being laid at your feet? And that seems to be the experience of so many of us. You know, A doesn't look like it's going to work until after you do it. And I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of alcoholics through the detox meetings I've been going to for over 41 years. And I haven't met a guy in detox yet in the hopelessness of alcoholism has burned his life to the ground who looks at the 12 steps and goes, Oh yeah, that would work. Nobody says that. Nobody even, it doesn't even occur to us. I mean, it might occur to your Al-Anon that was nudging you with their elbow. Oh yeah, this will work for you. Just better do it. But it doesn't occur to us until after we do it. And then we pretty much all say the same thing. Those of us that, are, that can finally surrender and completely give ourselves to this simple program, we all say the same thing. My God, why didn't I do this years ago? Thanks for listening.